Well, this morning we are um, uh, beginning our final chapter of 2 Corinthians, and it's been a journey. Um, and, and maybe you're ready for Paul to stop defending himself. I, I'm not sure. But as we come now, so um, uh, this week and next week, next week will be the final, um, the ultimate uh, uh, um, sermon from 2 Corinthians. But this morning we are in chapter 13, and we're looking at verses 1 through 10. And Paul is giving, he, he is reminding them that he is going to return. That his visit, his third visit to this, this uh, church that he has had a difficult relationship with, his visit is coming. And that's what he's announcing in chapter 13. And as he goes through this particular section, he's, the, the, the large, the, the, a summary of what he's doing here is, if things don't change when he arrives, it's going to, it could be ugly. Um, he, he is going to show them power that he has been accused of not having. He's been accused of being weak in his person and presence. And, and if things do not change before, you know, you think before dad gets home, um, it, it, it's going to be unpleasant. So, but, is, but he's hopeful that will not be the case. So that's the, the general tenor of the passage that we're going to work through this morning. Would you stand then for the hearing of the word of God? Paul writes, This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come... I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Would you pray with me? Hi, King of heaven, we bow before your throne, bringing our humble petition that you would cause your spirit to flow in and through us as a river of living water. Open our hearts and speak to us, encouraging us where we need to be encouraged and correcting us where we need to be corrected. And this for the sake of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. 
in these opening verses, um, Paul is he's warning them about his, his uh, impending uh, imminent uh, visit, and he is warning them. They need to be prepared for his coming. If they're not prepared, he is prepared to come with discipline, to come, as he, he kind of describes it in this passage, with power. Um, and, uh, and, and to be a witness against the Corinthians. And right away in verse 1, so he, he talks about his third time. This will be his third visit. And then he immediately, he, well, it's an allusion, a reference. He refers to uh, the, the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy where he writes, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, he He's, he's, he's referring back to Deuteronomy because of, in the context, he is coming, and if necessary, he is prepared to press formal charges. He's using that language to, in a way, describe uh, the, the, the possibility of church discipline that will take place. And the Old Testament requires a certain burden of proof in terms of um, uh, testimonial evidence. A single eyewitness was not enough to establish a matter um, in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. It was required to have two or three witnesses, two or three solid pieces of evidence to establish an accusation or a charge. And as Paul's coming, and he, he, he alludes to this, he does so with the confidence that there will be plenty of witnesses. And he's worried about, at least in the previous chapter, he's talked about discord within the church. He's talked about um, uh, um, gross immorality, sexual immorality that may need to be repented of. And especially he's been talking about these false teachers, these traveling evangelists that have been undermining. They've been discrediting Paul. They have discredited his apostolic calling in order to discredit his gospel teaching. And in place, they are presenting a different vision of Christ and a different vision of the Christian life. But in order to establish themselves, they have to discredit Paul. Well, Paul has successfully, um, he's defended his apostolic authority over and over again um, throughout this passage. And so now he says, when I come, there's a good possibility that we will see formal uh, uh, discipline um, that is issued. And so this is why he says in verse 2, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Okay? They've been claiming that he's weak. Well, Paul is using a little bit of irony here, but he says, if you want to see the power of Christ, well... Continue in your um, unrepentant state. Um, continue in your dismissal of, of, of myself, my, my apostolic authority, and my proclamation. And if you continue in those things, you will experience the power of Christ in and through me. Paul roots this warning of his coming along with the possibility of church discipline in verses 3 and 4. And there he writes, Since you seek proof, that Christ is speaking in me. And then he says, he, he's, he's referring to Christ. He, Christ, is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Um, Paul was not only accused of being weak, um, 
he was accused of being weak because he didn't seem to measure up to the standards of what they thought an apostle ought to be. Apparently, he, he didn't possess the eloquence of the Greek rhetoricians. Um, he didn't, and, and probably even of these false teachers, uh, they appear to have been far more eloquent um, in their presentation than the Apostle Paul. And you can also imagine just with all the persecution and physical abuse and torture that the Apostle experienced, he was probably disfigured. It probably affected his physical um, posture and, and, and um, appearance. And so for all these reasons, he didn't have that, that presence, that, that kind of um, strong um, uh, presence that they appreciated, that impressed them. But more than this, they, they were accusing him of being weak because of the amount of suffering that he endured. It seemed to, to, the, to these Corinthians that the victory that they should have experienced in Christ, it seems inconsistent with the shameful um, uh, treatment that the apostle has um, experienced, that he's endured. And of course, um, well, the, uh, the apostle Paul continues, and, and he, he uh, further explores this in verse 4. He continues to root this theme of weakness and power in the example of Jesus. So this is verse 4. Paul writes, For he, Christ, was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in Christ, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. What Paul is saying is he's just reminding them that the, the suffering, the element of suffering in his life, that by which he's being accused of being, you know, shameful, weak in their sight, that in fact, um, this is a paradigm that was laid out for us in the life of Jesus. Jesus himself is the paradigm of the Christian life. His is a life of weakness, especially the apostle is thinking of his crucifixion. But it would probably include just the Son of God coming from heaven and, and taking on the weakness of human flesh, of becoming, you know, he's not born to nobility. He's a servant. He sees himself as a servant to um, uh, the people. And in that, that desire to serve, he is willing to suffer the most extraordinary um, uh, suffering, uh, leading up uh, ultimately to the death, uh, his death on the cross. And what Paul is saying is that the life of Jesus, the weakness and the shame, um, which precedes then, but leads to the glory of the resurrection, the power and the strength of the resurrection. But you see, both of these are involved. Weakness and shame followed by life and glory and power. And, and what the apostle is saying is, my ministry actually is the ministry that best reflects the life and ministry of Jesus. How, you know, compare your false teachers. <laughs> is that the paradigm of their lives? And then Paul says, with, with a little bit of irony, though, you are looking for the power. Well, again, when I come, I'm bringing it if you are not ready, if you're not prepared uh, for my, my impending visit let me go on to say, too, that not only is this paradigm of weakness, suffering, and then glory and life, um, it's not just a paradigm for Christ. It's not just a paradigm for Paul. But it continues, you see, to be the paradigm of the church. This is the paradigm that, God, that Christ leads us through. 
And, and this is, so when Paul talks about, you know, uh, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This isn't just something Paul is saying about himself, but he's actually saying this is a paradigm for all of God's people. This is a paradigm for all of those who would want to follow Jesus. Jesus says if they treated the master this way, don't be surprised if they treat you, the world treats you with the same hostility with which they treated me. And so as we look at the the Christian life, we need to be careful that we don't import the victory of, uh, of God's future kingdom into the present. This is not the time of glory for the church. This is a time where, with Jesus, we're going through a wilderness. With Jesus, we continue to battle great enemies of sin and Satan and the world. And the world is hostile. It always has been hostile to the things of God and to the person of Christ. First comes the suffering, and then comes the victory, and then comes the glory of new life. And along the way, we have these experiences of life, of course. But we shouldn't get, um, you know, the cart in front of the horse. We, we shouldn't think in terms of right now, uh, this is a time we should be walking on water. This is the time of victory and triumph. That generally, is not the case. And, and what Paul is saying is, in fact, the weakness is necessary for the power and the glory to be demonstrated. That the irony is, and it's, 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 in the, it's modeled by Jesus, that the very instrument that God used to defeat sin, to defeat Satan, and to defeat the world was the, the most um, shameful, painful instrument of the cross. The cross becomes the ultimate weapon that God uses in the hands of the Messiah to defeat the great enemy. And the Old Testament prepares us for this, of course, by using these unusual instruments to bring victory, the jawbone of a donkey, uh, five, a sling and five smooth stones against a great giant. All of this is preparing that the most unusual instrument will be used to bring glory and, and, and victory um, to God's people. And the same is true. The irony is that God uses our weaknesses. He uses our suffering, our trials and tribulations to do his best work. And it's painful. And this is the way God has ordained it. This is what Paul is saying to them. And with Paul's imminent view, uh, visit and view, Paul writes about, for some at least, the need for self-examination. Verses 5 and 6. Verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So I I think in the context, I think Paul has a specific group of people in mind. (laughs) These are the people that are, you know, walking that line. You know, maybe they're uh, resisting the accountability to the church in their moral behavior. Um, more likely, Paul has in mind these, the people who are either discrediting him, that is the false teachers, or those who are adhering, who are following and accepting the teaching of these false teachers, these traveling evangelists that have infiltrated the church at Corinth. Now, 
So there's a specific thing here, and then there's a general thing. The general point, which is echoed in other places of the Bible, is that it is good to do some self-examination. It is good to know, um, to, to ask yourself, is there evidence in my life that I genuinely belong to Jesus? Is there evidence in my life that the Spirit of God lives in me, that the Spirit of God is at work in and through me? The, the Bible doesn't shy away from this question, and it gives us some, um, uh, various answers to this question. We can be encouraged um, uh, about the life of faith being genuine when we genuinely believe the promises of God, especially those promises concerning Jesus and his death and resurrection. In John 1.12, just one of these promises, but to all who did receive him, who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he, God, gave the right to become children of God. Do you believe the promise? And, and, and that's a, 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 just a first step, of course, because you could be self-deceived. But if you don't believe, well, right away, um, that's, that's pretty good evidence that you, you do not belong. Another evidence, are you growing in Christ-like character? In um, 2 Peter um, verse, chapter 1, verse 10, uh, Peter writes, Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. It's like another way of saying, at times, do the self-examination. Test yourself. Make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, things that he has just previously mentioned, things like uh, growing in um, steadfastness, godliness, self-control, brotherly kindness, and love. As you're, you're growing in these, kind, these, these, these the virtues that mirror Jesus, that's good evidence that the Spirit is truly at work within you. And then 1 John 3.14 says, test yourself to see if you have love for your Christian brothers and sisters. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. You know, it's not a good sign if you're like, oh, those Christians. I really, I don't enjoy them. They're so narrow. They just make me feel bad. Um, I, I don't want to be around them. That's not a good sign. And Joe, that's not a good sign. But when you're with your brothers and sisters, is there a genuine love, a joy, an enjoyment of being with them? That's a good sign that the Spirit is, in fact, at work within you. We, another good sign, and that is when we fall into this, we become wayward. We, we get off the path that the, we know we should be on. We fall into some kind of pattern of sin, perhaps. Well, do you endure God's discipline? God's discipline is a sign that you belong to him. Hebrews 12, 6, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. The Lord's discipline is actually a sign that you belong to him. And then we have an understanding of spiritual things. You're reading through the scriptures, and you're like thinking to yourself, this is really good. I don't know if you've had that experience, but that's a good sign that the Lord has placed in you a, not just a hunger for the word, but that his spirit is opening your eyes up. This is not true in general of, of non-believers. 
In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul writes, for the word of the cross, that is, the message of the gospel is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to, the, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He continues, the, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly, they're foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If when you're reading, you know, some portion of Scripture, and, and it's almost like you have this experience, like, this is like, this is like God's letter to me. This is so, I mean, it's beautiful. And, and you just, you want to celebrate it. That is a sign, you know, wherever you are in, in your spiritual, it's a sign that the Lord is at work. These are evidences that God's grace is real and genuine within you. And then finally, the, the New Testament just says perseverance in the faith is an element of, of salvation. Mark 13, Jesus says, and you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end, the one who endures to the end will be saved. You know, it's not falling down. It's not failing God that marks you as an unbeliever. It's a failure to get up. It's a failure to repent. It's a, it, and at the end of the day, even when you think about church discipline, what ultimately gets a person in trouble um, isn't usually the sin itself. It's the failure to repent of that sin. Paul concludes, um, uh, well, he, he himself, as he works through this issue, um, in 2 Corinthians, the issue is the way you'll know, especially with, the, with those who have um, taught false things or adhered to their teaching, the way you'll know if they have repented is if, in fact, they do embrace the Apostle Paul and his apostolic authority, if they do, in fact, receive his message. And it sounds kind of egotistical for us, for Paul to state it like this. But what Paul understands is, is that his apostolic authority is part of the message. It's part of what gives the message authority, that it is the word of God. You can't, because of his unique position as an apostle, you can't reject Paul, which would lead you to rejecting the message, and still be um, uh, in good standing with Christ, to still be in good standing with the Lord. It is for the good of the church. They need to embrace Paul. They need to embrace his message, or they themselves are, in a sense, cutting themselves off from the gospel that he is proclaiming in place of um, uh, the, uh, the false teaching of these, these teachers. So for them, they need to embrace him. And if they reject him, that's going to mark them for discipline. Paul concludes this passage then by just describing his wish for the Corinthians, beginning, you know, stated as a prayer in verse 7. But we pray to God that you may, this is really Paul's heart, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. His prayer is, in fact, I I don't want to come with judgment. Um, He says, we pray that you would not do wrong. Not, we don't pray that we may appear to have met the test. That is, he doesn't want to have to appear powerful, strong by conducting church discipline. It's just the reverse. Instead, we, we pray to God that you may not do wrong and that you may do what is right that we may seem to have failed, that we may continue to look weak before you. And just before kind of going on, just note again the importance of prayer. 
prayer is right at the center of Paul's ministry. He is constantly praying. He's praying for himself. He's praying for uh, those he's ministering with and ministering to. Ministry begins with prayer. We, We forget this so easily. Prayer is serious business with the Lord. It's the engine that drives. It's it's the engine that helps produce that spiritual fruit that we're really interested in. So just note that he begins here with prayer. And he shows his heart for the Corinthians in this prayer. He's not praying that he'll have the chance to prove his strength, to come with thunder. Um, No, he's praying, in fact, that they'll, they'll repent that they'll embrace his authority, that they'll embrace his gospel. And he's in fact confident in verse 8 that the truth, the truth of the gospel will prevail in the church at Corinth. He's confident that once again, his willingness to appear weak and unimpressive in person will correlate to the power and the strength of God at work within the church, at work among um, these Corinthians. God will work through the truth of the gospel that Paul is, in fact, proclaiming. There is a certain sense here which the truth will win out. Sometimes we doubt that. The truth, Paul's confident, the truth will win out. And then his heart is more fully expressed in verse 9. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Why? Your restoration is what we pray for. I'm praying for you that you will not do wrong, that you will do right. My prayer isn't that I come with thunder. My prayer is not, I don't want to be the guy who punishes individuals. I don't want to be the guy who's bringing judgment and wrath and all this unpleasantness. That's not my goal. It's not my desire. I have, it's not my, I don't have an ego. I really desire you to be restored to the Lord. In fact, going back to to, um, verse 5, that you would know that Christ truly is present with you, that Christ and the power of Christ is in you. That's what I want you to experience. I want you to flourish. He sums it up this way in verse 10. For this reason, I write these things, that while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in the use of authority that the Lord has given me, and why is the Lord giving him this new covenant authority? Here, he's, he, he, begin, he begins by referring to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Here in verse 10, he refers again to the Old Testament, to the prophet um, Jeremiah, who's prophesying a time when the new covenant will come. And, and in quoting this, he tells us something about how he views his ministry within the new covenant. He says that the authority that the Lord has given me for building up for building up and not for tearing down. Now, Paul, in some ways, as an apostle, he is a unique representative of Jesus himself. And what Jesus wants you to know is he's not looking for you to mess up. You know, this is not the heart of God, like just waiting, you know, for you to to make one mistake and then he's going to jump all over you. His ministry is not about tearing down. If necessary, he will tear down. He will bring discipline, he's saying. But that's not his heart. And that's not the primary um, uh, emphasis or priority in any stretch of the new covenant. 
The new covenant, God says, is about building up his people. This is what God longs for you. This is what God wants for all of us. Paul is again teaching the Corinthians that weakness and power go hand in hand in the Christian life. And this is really good news for us who have limitations, who are very imperfect, flawed individuals, who are struggling with trials of many kinds. This weakness becomes the platform by which God does his best work, the platform by which God is glorified. And as Paul exhorts the Corinthians to test themselves, to see that Christ is present, my hope is that you will be encouraged by seeing genuine marks of the Spirit at work in your lives. And as we minister to one another, may our ministry, like the new covenant ministry of Paul, be primarily about building one another up and not tearing down. Would you pray? Our God and our Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the model of Paul, who himself is a model of Jesus. And we know that one day we will be visited by Jesus himself, whether it's when he returns or when we go to be with him. And so, Lord, may we as a church corporately be prepared. May we, Lord, seek to repent of, of those sins that we know are displeasing in your sight. And may we be ready, may we look forward to that day when we will, we will be called to appear before you. And so we pray it in the name of our Savior, in the name of our Lord who died for us, in Jesus' name, amen.